Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, would you open the word today? We're in Gospel of John, and we love the Gospel, Lord. We love your word. Just as those children need the word, we need the word. It has life in it. We ask you to open our understanding. Jesus, you're the one who disciples us. No man disciples us. You disciple us. And we want to hear your words, and we want to watch you. So we're standing in that temple courtyard watching this very event take place. We want you to be our model and teach us. We love you. We worship you. We honor you. And we ask, Lord, that our spiritual eyes and ears would open up today. And I'd be given the grace to get out of the way and let you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, here we go. Starting at uh, chapter 2, verse... I'll start at verse 13. We are... The, going to be there on that temple courtyard in Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, a small whip, and drove them. It says in my, as far as I can read the Greek, he drove the sheep and the oxen out. That's what he did. He uh, he, he took, made a, a, a rope, uh, whip and began to get out of here and began to drive these uh, animals off the temple courtyard. Let me remind you about this temple courtyard. Um, I had somebody actually question me the other day saying, are you sure it's as big as you say it is? And what I say it is, it's 30 acres of, of flat of stone. Yeah, if you go, if you, right now, I saw it on the news last night, uh, if you watch what's happening in Jerusalem and you see them throwing these um, rocks and, and, and all of that, and then you see the tear gas canisters flying around, that's there on the very platform, on the very stones that Jesus is standing on now. I mean, it, the old surface is still there. And when we, when we go to Israel, uh, and if this chaos isn't going on, we go up there, and we did last year, and stand on that very courtyard. It's a huge place. We're in the court of the Gentiles. And if you take this whole outer perimeter, the area within it is 32 acres, I think. So it's very large. And then within the very center of that is the temple itself. Maybe a couple of acres. But you've got this massive courtyard around it. And what's happened is, is the high priest has brought in probably just this year. Maybe the year before, but very recently, he has brought in the, all of the sellers of, of animals to be sacrificed that were out on the city streets. Probably in the early, when you're coming into Jerusalem, you could get the animal and then bring it in. But that required you to go to the priest the, day, the night before and present that animal and have it checked out to see if it's, if it's without blemish. And so there's an inspection process and some kind of certification, all that thing, kind of thing has to go on. So this, this now is that you can come right into the temple courtyard, buy it on the way. I mean, talk about drive-through service. You can, you can, you can buy your, your animal, which is undoubtedly certified, uh, before you even have to take it. You see how this convenience of this. 
And then, of course, the high priest and his guys get, all the, get a tax or a percentage off of everything sold. So it's really ugly what's happened. We've filled a court that was originally designed for what? Who remembers? For welcoming the Gentiles to come to the, to the, to the living God. The court of the Gentiles. And because the prophets had said that, that the nations would come and that they would come up to Jerusalem and say, come and teach us the ways of the Lord. Remember all this? Read Isaiah. Read the Psalms. It's just all through there that, that the nations would come and they would seek the Lord God in, in the last days and, and, and frankly, any days. And so here this great court was made to welcome them. What was it doing? It was full of oxen and sheep and cages of doves and, and people changing coins so you could give the appropriate coins into the offering. And that's, that's the environment in which Jesus is, is walking into right now. What does he do? He comes in and he takes and he makes a whip and he drives those animals. I don't know which exit he went to. I can guess. I bet it's the one on the east, but I don't know. And he began to, I don't know if he made a stampede, but he gets all of this going. And you can just imagine all of the stalls that are falling down, the straw that's getting dragged around. Uh, but because he's whipping them. Yeah, get out of here. You know, so, you know. And, and I, read one, I read one historian that said that they, had, they could have 3,000 sheep on this thing at one time. I mean, you got to, this is sheep herding, boy. And, and so you've got this massive thing moving this direction. You can imagine everything's falling over. They're jumping over everything. All of the stuff is getting dragged around this courtyard. The coins, he's, he's pushing the tables over and throwing the coins on the ground. So you've got this splashing of coins all over. You've got the oxen adding to this. They are downright dangerous. And then he's telling, he comes up to the dove guys and he says, get those things out of here. Don't make my father's house a place of business. Remember that? All right, that's, that's, the, that's the picture that's just happened. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, as they're watching this, zeal for your house will consume me. They remember a prophetic promise. So when Messiah comes, he would have a zeal for the house of God. He would want to restore the worship of Israel back with real passion to the true and living God. Verse 18. The Jews. Now, when it says the Jews, be careful here. Everybody in the picture is Jewish, all right? So why would you say the Jews? That was the term they used for the religious leaders. This is not the Jewish people. This is the religious leaders. And it isn't just John that uses this term. This was a common term. Luke will use it. You'll see everybody use it. For some reason, they call these head guys the Jews. And so it'll be the high priest. It'll be uh, some of the Sanhedrin some of those, those key people. That's who shows up. And then the Jews said to him, you know, they come out in the midst of all of this, you've probably mess, and they said, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Would you say that? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. By the way, and I'll mention in my daily Bible study, that, that tells you exactly the year you're in. We, we know what year you're in. It's 27 AD if you're interested. And you will raise it up in three, three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, 
His disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They come up to him. You got this, you got coins everywhere, hay scattered, animals probably still caught in some nook, bleeding away, you know, (laughs) all of this mess. And up come the religious leaders and say, prove that you have the authority to do this. How on earth, you know, what makes you think you could do this? And here's Jesus' answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What does that mean? (laughs) These guys... Have you had the experience of you ask God something and his answer to you makes absolutely no sense at all? Huh? This is his style. This is the way it is. And I'm gonna, there's a truth here. There's something very profound going on here. This is not misreported. This is not like, why did they put that in there? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. No, it's not misreported at all. This is Jesus' way. In fact, if you follow through the Gospels, you'll see this a lot. You'll see people ask questions, and then he gives this answer, and everybody goes, what? What? That's what we're going to talk about today. Someday you'll understand. Hallelujah. Sometimes Jesus tells us things we can't understand, at least not yet. Someday we will. Someday we will look back, and it will all fit together. But not now. Now, frankly, what he said doesn't make any sense at all. This raises an obvious question. Why would Jesus tell us something we're not capable of understanding? Why wouldn't he wait until we've matured sufficiently? We need only read through the Gospels and watch for examples of Jesus telling people things that made no sense to them to see how often he did it. This is clearly one of the ways he deals with people. Just in the previous chapter, Nathaniel, remember Nathaniel? Nathaniel, uh, he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, you're the king of Israel. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you think that's good? And then, and then, and then he says, he, he says um, you will see the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Can't you see Nathaniel going, what? And then we looked at what he meant. And it's powerful. But it's too deep for anybody. He will tell us things too deep for us at the time. And he does now. This, he doesn't change. He still does this, doesn't he? He does it with us. As we watch Jesus address these religious leaders in the temple courtyard. We hear him answering their challenge to prove his authority from God with a statement that is startling. It's a, and I can't believe he just said that kind of statement. How could he possibly expect them to understand? And indeed, they didn't. They thought he was out of his mind. And later, they used that very statement to convict him at his trial. Do you recall this? The witnesses came forward at his trial, and what did they say? He said he will tear down the temple, and in three days, he'll build it back up. That's the charges made uh, two, over, just over two years later as he's being uh, brought to trial. But he wasn't out of his mind. He was being incredibly merciful. He was planting a seed of truth, listen to this, in the heart of his executioners, 
with the hope that after it all happened, they would remember his words and believe and be saved. And it may have worked with two of them. Remember something now, and I'm gonna gonna show it to you more clearly in a minute. The men that are standing in front of him, challenging him right now, we got straw everywhere, we got sheep that have been running all over the place, we've got coins strewn on the ground, the men come up to him and say, who gave you the authority to do this, to challenge us like this? And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's crazy, only it's not. He gives them a truth that two years from now, they will participate in. He is planting a seed in their hearts so that when they do exactly what he says, they will have the chance to repent and believe. He's merciful to his enemies. He's telling the very men that will kill him that will arrange for the whole thing. You'll destroy this temple. But I'll come back in three days. And I'm going to show you in a little bit. I'm going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. They later on understood exactly what he meant. As we read this passage, we need to understand what happened and why. Because Jesus still tells people things they can't understand, at least not yet. I said at least two of those leaders, two of those Sanhedrin leaders, actually did hear the message and responded. Anyone remember the name of two of those leaders that came to Christ? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. As this thing began to unfold, exactly as he said it would, Joseph of Arimathea and and Nicodemus came out and they took his body down off the cross and buried it, wrapped it, cleaned it, and buried it. They said, it's happening exactly what he said would happen. Nothing proves more the claim that selling in the court of the Gentiles was an unpopular activity than the way the temple officials confronted Jesus. They knew why he did what he did. That's, I pointed that out two weeks ago. This is, they, they fully understood this is a prophetic act, cleansing the temple. You are, you are saying we violated the, the temple of God with this, and you have just done that for that reason. They understood that he was what he did to be prophetic rejection of their misuse of that court. Notice, there is no threat to arrest Jesus, no question as to why he did it. As he stood there with coins scattered all over the ground, tables lying on their sides, and probably straw and straws strewn all over acres of the stone platform, they simply asked, what sign do you show us to prove that you've been sent by God to do these things? Apparently, they wanted him to produce a miracle to validate his claim that God was with him. They may have had in mind something like Moses throwing down his staff and turning it turning into a serpent. Do you remember that? That, that God had said, now Moses, you're going to go to the people of Israel and, and when you tell them these things, they won't believe you. So here's a sign I want you to have that you can prove to them I'm with you. So, so when, they, when they don't believe you, then you take that, that staff of yours and throw it on the ground, it'll become a snake. That ought to impress them. Grab it by the, the tail and it'll <laughs> turn into a stick again. That to, but, but at some point they'll figure out I'm with you. If that doesn't work, stick your hand in your coke, pull it out, it'll be white with leprosy, stick it back in and we'll fix it. All right? Ironically, the cleansing of the temple which Jesus had just performed was a very biblical sign of his messiahship. But these leaders were daring him to perform some sort of magic trick with the hope that he would try and fail and be discredited. Their goal was to undermine his spiritual authority and challenge, to challenge their leadership. 
they were attacking him for the same reason they had attacked John the Baptist. If Jews, pardon me, if Jesus were not able to produce a magic trick, they would expose him as a self-appointed religious zealot who had no right to do what he did, and they would immediately bring the animals and money changers back in. Jesus never did miracles for their own sake. Do you see that? I'm going to say it again. Jesus never did miracles for their own sake. Nobody can say, do one and prove it. Do one and prove yourself. He never responds to that. Still doesn't, by the way. He only did what the Father led him to do, which was always to fulfill promises concerning the Messiah or an, as an act of compassion to care for specific human need. He had no intention of responding to this demand. He would not try to prove to these scoffers his authority, but he knew that a day would come when this very group of men who were standing in front of him would see a miraculous sign that would prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was with him. At a future Passover, I think it was two years from that moment. Remember, we're standing in a Passover, and exactly two years in the future, they'll be at a Passover again in which Jesus is arrested, and, and you know all that happened with the cross. Just like the Passover they were participating in at that moment, they would arrest him. Remember, now keep this in mind, it was the temple police, not, the, not Roman soldiers, who arrested Jesus in Gethsemane. Did you know that? You do now. Read, read the passage. I give you the scriptures. It was not Roman soldiers that arrested Jesus in the garden. It was the temple police that went out and arrested him. It was, the, it was the police, including some of these men themselves, the high priest is there, that went out into the garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And, and it was they, the religious leaders, not the Jewish people in general, who would press for his crucifixion. Read those passages. And by that act, they would destroy the true temple of God. Literal, literal word there is sanctuary, which was the body of Jesus, for it was in him, not in a stone building, that all the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. Remember who's standing in front of them. This is Jesus. John says, in him was life. In him was life. He's, he's the son of God. At that moment, Jesus' words meant nothing to these religious leaders. But two years later, those words would become a powerful prophetic witness. That group of men would destroy his body, but three days later, he would come back to life and they would have the testimony of their own guards to prove it. Now, I want you to see this. They really know that happened. So go with me to Matthew 27. There's a story underneath this that you, you gotta put it back together. Look at verse 62. Well, actually, look, look at 27 verse 40. You see that? He's on the cross and people passing by. What do they say to him in verse 40? Do you see it? Matthew 27, verse 40. You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Do they remember this statement? This is a huge statement. The people and, and the religious leaders and people walking by are throwing it at his face. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Now look over at verse 62. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, this is the day after he's crucified, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. They, the disciples don't get it. 
the disciples will look into the empty tomb and go, I wonder where he went. <laughs> right? It's amazing. They have to go, they have to poke at him, you know, and go, before they believe. But these men, these, these religious leaders, by this point in time, they know what he said. Oh, you're coming back to life. You're talking about you and you're coming back to life. They knew it was three days. They knew exactly what he'd prophesied. So what do they do? They go to Pilate and they said, he's, he said he's coming back in three days. So let's therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And the, deception, the last deception will be worse than the first. Now notice this. Pilate said to them, you have a guard Go make it as, as secure as you, you know how. Every Easter play you've ever seen has a Roman guard standing there. It wasn't a Roman guard. It was the temple police that were standing there. And they went and made it as secure as they knew how and put a seal on the stone. Now, look at your, stay, in, stay there in Matthew. Look at Matthew 28, verse 11. Now, this happens, okay, after the resurrection. We put a seal on that stone. He's been resurrected. Now, verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, what did those guards tell the high priest and, the lead, and all those leaders, the same group of men he's talking to in the courtyard? What did the guards say? An angel shows up. The, can't, the, the thing blows open. He, he, he came to life. And they said, here's what you tell everybody. We're going to pay you a lot of money. Yeah, and, and, and what you tell them is the disciples came and you fell asleep and we'll protect you politically. Okay? Did they know he came back to life? You know, this is a hard one to understand because Jesus, uh, Jesus actually says that those religious leaders... We're not ignorant. He'll give a parable. Do you remember this? He says there's a man who had a vineyard. And he said he sends, sends his servants and they beat him up and all. And then it says, finally, the owner of the vineyard said, they'll respect my son. So he sent his son. And it said when the, when the, when the, when the men running the, working in the vineyard saw the son coming, they said, that's the son. Let's kill him. And the vineyard will be ours. In other words, this was a coup. This was, they were saying, we know who you are. And if we, if we acknowledge you, you'll take all of the people and the money and the power away from us. And you'll take it. And so this was war. It wasn't ignorance. It was war. And so they, they said, if uh, you say that he, they came and stole him. And, and if the governor hears about it, we will, we will tell him... Uh, We'll make it all right. And then they took the money. And this was the story spread among the Jews. And, and, and Matthew says, and it is to this day. All right, let's go back. This, the strange words he spoke were actually a parable whose meaning would be revealed in the future. If any of the leaders had the integrity to acknowledge his resurrection after it happened, they would remember that he had told them that they would kill him and he would rise in three days. Amazingly, he was planting a seed in, the hearts of an, in their hearts in an attempt to save any one of them who might have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. 
that these leaders still remember the statement by the time of the crucifixion and resurrection is unquestionable. These very words became the initial charge against him at his trial. By that time, they knew exactly what the parable meant. Isn't that amazing? He's trying to save them. I want to comment. He says, notice he said, destroy this temple and then what? What's the, la- what's the second part of that phrase? And I, say I. I will raise it up. Now, that's, that's bizarre. They asked, him, they asked for a sign, so Jesus prophesied to them about his physical body. He told them that the sign they were asking for would come in the future. They would kill him, but in three days, he would come back to life. That would prove to them his true identity. By saying about his body, I will raise it up, Jesus was not denying the fact that the Father would be the one who resurrected his corpse. Or that the Holy Spirit would be the agent by which he would do this. But he was declaring an authority only God's divine son could possess. He would make the same statement when describing himself as the good shepherd. He said, why don't you read this with me? I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my father. We have no real knowledge of where Jesus spent those three days while his body lay in the tomb. But as God's divine son, he was not asleep. And he may well have participated in his own resurrection. And if so, it was an authority granted to him directly by the father. The point he is making by this statement is to say he was not a victim. He would, pardon me, no one would take his life from him. He would give it freely and death had no power to hold him in its grip. He would choose to submit to death for three days in order to fulfill the prophecies. But then he would simply walk back into his dead body and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that dead body would explode into resurrection life. Did you follow that? I had a pastor friend say this to me just in a couple of weeks ago. He uh, met another pastor in the community and, and the pastor said to him, well, you know, Jesus was, 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 was just a man. Jesus was, a, uh, you know, he was a rabbi and a really good teacher and, and, and maybe even a human Messiah, but he wasn't God. And then the comment was made, and, and this, I, I'm, this is not, nothing new to me. The comment was made, you know, John's the one that made him a god. Yeah, the gospel of John. And so there are people who want to argue that Jesus was just a, a really good rabbi, and John comes along and deifies him. But of course, and then they also have to throw in Paul, because he's, he's, he's one of the culprits too. You know, nobody says in him dwelt <laughs> all the, the deity, the Godhead bodily. And he, but Paul's very clear about it. So you got Paul and John are the culprits. They turned this, this, this Jewish rabbi into a god. John wrote his gospel. I think it's quite clear. Because people were already losing track of who Jesus was. This is hard to understand, isn't it? How does God ha- have a son? You, you need to know, that is, that is one of the most difficult things that's, that's, that's around. 
Islam, one of the major tenets of Islam, and the thing, the issue they have with us, God has no son. It's in the Quran, it's on the walls there on the Temple Mount, in that mosque. Twice, God has no son. And Christianity comes along and says, God has a son, and he sent him to us. Do you see it? Absolute conflict. You, you, the cults in America, they go after this. There are whole versions of the Bible written just to sanitize it, particularly the Gospel of John, of speaking of Jesus this way. When Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's just not something a normal man says, is it? The Bible teaches us, John teaches us, and John, this is what John is trying to show us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's trying to say that God has a son. It does, the Bible does not tell us how God has a son. It is not a sexual process. There's no mother. There's nothing like that. That's disgusting. But God has a son. We know that. And it was the son who he sent for us. God, the son of God, for, who, who existed for from forever. You and I begin in our mother's womb. The moment you're conceived, a spirit begins. It's just ignited. The moment there's a conception, a human spirit is ignited at that moment. And that human spirit of yours is eternal from that point on. You will never cease. I promise you. Yeah, I promise you. You don't die. You don't cease. You simply step across. That's what this is all about. That's why we're here. That's why we're worshiping. It's why we tell others. That's why we do all that we do. Is because this is real. But Jesus is different in this sense. He didn't begin in Mary's womb. He came from heaven and joined our human flesh. He is for forever and forever. Do you follow this? And this is what we're seeing, and you'll see it all through John. And it's not an accident, it's not a mistake. The, who are you going to believe? If, if I were going to believe somebody, I think I would pick the Apostle John. I would pick Paul. I would follow them. There are people right now, it's kind of a trend, that, you know, in our culture to just downgrade everything. And so I'm hearing from supposed evangelicals comments like this, that if you put, your, are we going to put our faith in 2,000-year-old letters? If we do, we'll soon become obsolete. That's almost a quote. 2,000-year-old letters, as though Paul or, or John or any of these are just, these are just guys and this is their opinion. These are not just guys. These are people Picked by God, through whom he spoke his word. They are apostles. Do you follow that? They are not like anyone else. And I know there's people who have apostolic ministry, but they're not these. These are the ones Jesus sovereignly appointed to record the truth for us. And I believe in them. We all have to decide, who am I going to follow? Who am I going to listen to? Who am I going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to put? Because you're going to die, sweetest. You, uh, you, uh, so am I. We're all headed to that curtain. And who are you going to go with through the curtain? I'm, I'm going with this one. 
I'm going with the God of the Bible. I'm going with his son, and I'm going to believe what it says. That's what I'm putting my soul on. This isn't for me. I, I'm not, I don't do this as some kind of job. I would go get a real job. I, I would. This is so not a job. I, I, I do this because I believe this with all my heart. Don't you? Yeah. I'm going through, and I'm, I'm absolutely convinced we're right. And every, every evidence, everything I see, Jesus is the Savior. And he is the son of God who came to earth, joined human flesh. I don't understand all of this, but I believe it so that he has become fully a man. When you see him, he's fully a man. He's as human as you are. And then he's, he, he to this moment, is a resurrected man. Right now, we have a resurrected man in heaven. The first fruits of many brethren. Because you and I, by adoption, and by the power of that resurrection, which has now already been planted in us in, in its early forms, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the fullness of the Spirit dwelling in you, you will someday be resurrected into the same glory that he's in now. You'll shine like the sun. It sounds crazy, but it is what it says. You're on your way to eternity as a child of God. And all that it means, I think, is beyond human words. So does John, and is he intentionally recording for us these passages which describe Jesus? And, 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 and he's, it, I think he's saying to a, to, a, to a society, he wrote the gospel late apparently. He wrote it from Ephesus. And he's saying, whoa, everybody, I don't know where you're going with this Jesus the way you're talking about him. Let me tell you the one I knew. Let me tell you, because I was there. I'm standing two feet from him when he says this. Let me tell you what I heard our Lord say. And so he is telling us the truth about Jesus. I believe John, do you? All right. Watching Jesus' disciples. John admits that he and the other disciples only remembered and believed these words after Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying either. In fact, it appears they missed most of the important things he said. These sorts of statements are scattered throughout the Gospels. Quote, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And for as yet, and this is with disciples looking into the empty tomb. They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They're staring into an empty tomb going, where'd he go? Time and again, they didn't understand, but it wasn't because they couldn't understand. Follow this. They didn't understand, but it wasn't because they couldn't understand. Jesus clearly hoped for more from them. There were moments when he showed real frustration at their lack of insight, saying things like this. Why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? You unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I put up with you? You can hear him amping up a little bit here. Oh, foolish men. This is after his resurrection with a bunch of disciples that still don't get it. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 
Their minds were clouded by fear, incomplete and distorted teachings about the Messiah, and a lack of faith. Even Abraham had been able to believe that God could resurrect the dead. But not Jesus' own disciples until he stood in front of them and they could touch him. Their struggle to understand Jesus is comforting in a way. It helps us understand our own. A profound truth. Now let's apply this truth this to ourselves. How often has God said something to you or me that we didn't understand when we first heard it? How many of you have, have, have had him speak things to you that just made no sense when you heard them? It's like, what? Yes? Try this one. How many have read passages in the Bible and you came across it and you said, what on earth is that doing in the Bible? That is insane. Yes? If you haven't, you haven't read it. And I want, I want you to start reading now, okay? Yeah. Want to know one of mine? That one where you're reading, it's in Exodus. It's in Exodus, I like, what is it, five, four or five or somewhere in there, I think. And Mo- Moses has been called now to go back to Egypt. He's been out in Midian. He's married Zephora. He has two sons, uh, Gershom and somebody. And, and, and he's headed back to, to Egypt. And it says that as he and his family, his wife and kids, are on their way, God met him and tried to kill him. And I read that. What? You what? You tried to kill him? You know, and, and that really, I, I struggled that for, for years, you know. I'm looking around trying to find an answer. Why did you try to kill Moses? <laughs> and then finally, finally the Lord showed it to me. But that was, a, that was a real obstacle. It was like, that's crazy stuff. Maybe it's a mistake. Maybe it's an accident. I mean, how, 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 and of course, I don't believe in mistakes in the Bible. But I'm going, well, how did that get in there? And then the Lord showed me. He said, first of all, he said, if I tried to kill him, I'd get him. I'm a good shot. You know, I, I had a, I'd kind of pictured God up on a cloud, you know, with a bunch of lightning bolts, and then Moses is running around, and I'm like, no, no. I think he's under that rock. Oh. I mean, tried to kill him? Well, and so the Lord sort of filled it in. He says, look, if I wanted to get him, I got him. And, and then, so what I, what I realized, okay, we're talking about some sort of, of sickness or, or, or injury or collapse unto death. I mean, he's lying in his tent dying for some reason. And do you remember what the solution was? This is where the Lord showed. He's lying there dying, and then what happens? And this is absolutely bizarre. His wife goes out and does, well, circumcises their two sons. Remember, she is a Midianite. She's married, she's the daughter of a Midianite priest, Jethro. And so she goes out and circumcises their two sons and then brings back the evidence that she had done it uh, to Moses. And then Moses is healed. Okay, you talk about bizarre. Unless, and then the Lord says this. He reminded me, he said, what did that represent? Well, help me. What, What did God say to Abraham concerning the circumcision of the males in his family line? Every male who is circumcised will be part of the covenant. And any male who is not will not be. Picture this. The great deliverer of Israel has neglected his own two sons and left them outside the covenant. It's abominable. And what it was was a marriage tension. 
She is a Midianite. This idea of, of, of circumcising her sons is disgusting to her. She won't. She don't want him doing it. And that's why she went out and did it. <laughs> All right. And she throws the thing at his feet and says, "You're a you're a, a husband of blood to me." <laughs> and so you can tell the tension. But he's allowed that. He's allowed that struggle in his marriage to keep his own sons outside. And God says, you're not going back and deliver my people and ignore your own flesh. He stopped him in his tracks. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't the Bible say if a man does not manage his household well, he can't manage the household of God? Paul Paul brings that very thing in Timothy. Now it makes sense. Now it's beautiful. Actually, I mean, it's, 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 it's a powerful illustration of the heart of God once I see it. But before I saw it, it was confusion and and an obstacle to me. How often have you had those? Haven't we frequently been as perplexed as those standing in that temple courtyard? When the Lord speaks a promise to our heart or we read a challenging truth in the Bible, don't we act just like his disciples? Actually, what spiritual truth could we name that we could say we now fully understand? I mean, how about salvation? You got it down? Baptism of the Holy Spirit, you got that one, right? Know all about it, know exactly what it is. How, how about healing? We've, got, we've all got that nailed down. Every, anyone here, just you fully understand healing. Yes, please talk. To, don't you dare leave the service without talking to me if you do. <laughs> I've been on a quest to understand healing since my aunt died when I was 13. After we prayed for her and she got baptized in the spirit and the whole nine yards and I've been wondering ever since, Lord Jesus, what, why do some and why don't others? And I'm still on that course. Do you see what I'm saying? Isn't spiritual truth like an onion? We just keep seeing more of it. He shows us different things, but do we ever arrive? I don't think so, not in this life. At least I haven't. Don't we merely have a partial understanding of the deep things of God? At best, So if Jesus were to wait for us to mature to the point where we could fully understand him before he taught us something, he'd never be able to teach us anything. What we're seeing at work here is a profound truth. Jesus teaches us the principles of God's kingdom before we're able to understand them. Here are a few reasons why. Number one, he makes known to his friends all the things that he has heard from the Father whether we're mature enough to believe what he tells us or not. He begins, listen to this, he begins to do this the moment we're saved. When you become a Christian, God places you in Christ. Uh, Friday night, we had a seminar with, our, with the women's ministry, and they invited me to speak, and I really enjoyed that. And, uh, but one of the, we were looking at different passages about women in ministry, and, and we went to the Galatians 3 passage where Paul says that there's no male nor female, no Jew nor Greek, all of this for those of us who are in Christ. And, we took, and, and, I, and I, I reminded them of this concept, but the concept's for everybody. The concept is this. When you and I, Paul actually says, for when, you are, when you're baptized into Christ, you are immersed into him. And then he says, for we are now clothed with Christ. And the picture is, you and I, when we believe in the, in the Greek, and this is the Greek preposition, we don't believe in Jesus. The Greek preposition, and I'm not making this up, I am totally right, is into Jesus. You believe yourself into him. And here's the picture. 
you placed within Christ and surrounded by him. So that now when you and I stand before God, what is, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the, the authority of Christ. He sees the privilege of Christ. You don't stand there, male or female, Jew or Greek, Parthian or Scythian, slave or free, doesn't matter our social status, matter, none of that makes any difference at all. We all stand in the same position, clothed with Christ. Do you follow that? When the devil looks at you, what does he see? He sees Christ. When the law comes to you and, and says you sinned, what does it see? Christ. You see this? All right, this is the point. So when you're in Christ... God instantly, instantly gives you everything. So you can, be, you can be one day old as a Christian. And there's nothing he will withhold from you. And he starts teaching you things way beyond your capacity to understand. Because you now are a full daughter, a full son of his. You're his. Jesus says, those who are my friends, I tell you everything. It's John 15. I give you the quote there. He says, if you're my friends, I tell you everything that the Father has told. Everything. Number two, he tells us truths before we need them so that when we need them, they will be there to guide us. In effect, he plants a seed in our own hearts so that after it happens, the Holy Spirit can remind us of what he said and invite us to believe. He does this even when he knows we will reject it at first. How many things does he say to us? He'll make a statement to you, and your first response was, no way, that can't be. And then as life goes on and softens you up a bit, or circumstances change and come around, there comes that moment where you go, he said this would happen. He said this would happen. He told me this a long time ago. Right? He works with us. He, he was actually doing that with those temple officials. He puts a seed in our heart that in time will, will make sense. Number two, three. He tells us difficult things we don't want to hear, so we, so we refuse to understand them until circumstances force us to face reality. Some things you just keep denying. You refuse to hear until you have to hear them. At least I'll assume you're like me. Number four, he tells us things too great for us because it's possible for us to obey things. Listen, this is really important. It is possible for us to obey things we don't understand and be blessed. Comprehension is not necessary. Obedience is. He is opening a door for us to be blessed even while we're still immature and ignorant. You can find, you go, Lord can speak a promise to you and you don't understand at all how it works or why it works. It just seems absolutely, I, don't, I can't see how that would work. But you now have the opportunity to obey something you don't understand and it will still work for you. All of a sudden, that blessing, that power will enter into your life even though you don't know why it works. You don't know why it's true. Can I get an amen or an oop? You follow this? Okay, I got, I'm just wanting to do illustrations. I won't. He shows us signposts so that when we pass one in the future, we'll know we're on the right path. We'll remember he said this would happen. Number six, his words have a creative power. 
He is able to speak things into existence. Romans 4.17, does anyone know what that says? He, he calls that which is not, what? This is speaking of God. Now, I, this, that, he calls that which is not, which does not exist, as though it were, and, in, and when God does this, he literally it speaks creative power and creates what doesn't exist. That's the point. God is able to call into existence something that there isn't there at all. He doesn't just move things around. He makes something brand new. So when he speaks to you a promise, when something is alive to you, there is more happening than just the passing of information. So when he promises us something, he doesn't just foresee and describe what will happen in the future. He actually announces what he's going to do in and through us and his very words set in motion those realities. God speaks to us. And when God speaks, life comes. Remember that wonderful statement about Jesus? In him was life. In him is life. So when he says, child, I'm doing this. Listen to me. He's not just informing you. He's creating it. Did you follow this? That's this. Now, I understand this, this teaching gets taken other ways and gets bizarre. But this is not bizarre. The God who creates and speaks into existence, that is absolutely what the Bible says. How should we respond to truth we don't understand? Number one, accept what God says is true even though we don't understand it. This requires humility and submission. But it protects us from throwing away our blessing or becoming deceived. This is the key to rapid growth. The man or woman who says, I only will go forward when I understand a thing is going to stop growing instantly. You, and you know people like that. And they consider it intellectual integrity. If this doesn't make sense to me, how can I go forward on it? I'm not, I'm not going to take my brain and throw it away? No, but you're... How do we say this? It's like a minnow peering out through an aquarium glass at the owner. You're trying to understand somebody who's so much bigger, so much smarter, is so beyond you that you're a minnow. <laughs> Do you follow this? You look at any of these things, you know, that the Hubble telescope? He names all, he's named all of that. He made it. I mean, go ahead and say, but where did it all come from? Where did the order and the beauty and the power, I mean, the mass and the energy of this universe, where did it come from? This person we call Father, who loves us and knows the hairs on our head. So when he tells you something, you may not comprehend everything he's trying to communicate. And, and the wise man or woman says, I don't understand it yet, but I have a file called to be answered later. This, this is, I got a file to be answered later. And I can put it in there and I'm not, I'm not taking my head. I, I want to know, but I know I can't know right now. It doesn't, I'm, I don't get it. But I know what you said. So I'm putting that in there right now. Would you explain that to me when I can know it? Would you? And by the way, he will. And he won't forget 
And all of a sudden, things open up to us. That's the key to growth. Number two, ask God to give us the faith to believe what he says. Faith is usually the result of a process rather than an instantaneous gift. We usually learn it only when we desperately need it. But we're spiritually, if we're spiritually hungry, we can let him grow our faith step by step now. And number three, watch for examples of where this truth has taken place in the lives of others. Talk to people who are farther along than we are. Ask them, how did they learn this truth? Remember, we can learn from others and save ourselves from going through some hard lessons. Look around for men and women who are, who, who've, who've, who've studied the word and the Lord's shown things. Look around for men and women full of faith or men and women who've walked through what you're having to walk through and, tell, and say, tell me what you learned in the process. Don't go through this alone. And there's, there's things they can say to you, I went through this, here's what I felt. You're going, yeah. Here's what I felt, yeah. Here's what I felt, and here's how God, what God told me. And you can shortcut the whole thing. You don't have to learn everything the hard way. You, we can learn from other people. Number four, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. This is Jesus' term for it. And what he was talking about, avoid religious explanations that teach us to stop expecting miracles. Avoid religious explanations that teach us to stop expecting miracles. His disciples, he had just, they, they had just fed 5,000 with two um, fish, was it, and five loaves and two fish, or two loaves and five fish, I don't remember. I'm, I'm, again, I had a long night. Okay, which is it? Five loaves and two fish, yes it is. And they, they, they're, 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 they're going someplace and they said, we don't have any bread. And he said, oy vey. Now, that's not in there, but it, he, he must have. He said, he said, you beware the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, the teaching of all these religious, these religious sticklers and law keepers. You're, you're believing their junk. Don't believe religious teachings that stop you from expecting miracles. You've just seen the power of God. Why do you say we have no bread? It, it really does it to us, doesn't it? It does it to all of us. We all have to. I mean, there's a lot of that teaching out there now. And finally, remember this. We are all going through the same process and we're all still learning. But a day is coming, people. Would you read this with me? For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, just as we have been fully known. Amen. Would you stand with me? The day will come, you'll know all this. It'll all make sense. But that day's not here yet. Now we have to walk in faith, and now we have to trust. And now we have to hang on to him and believe him and let him teach us things. He's training us now. How many of you, there are, there are issues that have, stuck, have got you stuck? Questions or things that really bother you? either in the scripture 
Things God has said to you and you cannot see at all how they'll ever come to pass. Maybe these were spoken a long time ago. And you think by now it's gone. It's dead. That can never happen. And there's a sadness and a resignation that's gone on. I've lost that promise. It'll never happen. God tells us things long before we need to know them. God tells us things that we don't understand at the time, but they're still true. And what's the response? To say, Lord, I believe. I trust you. I trust you. You know, it's that that prophetic word about the shield, that as these assaults come, the shield. What's the shield primarily? Shield is the shield of faith. To come against those darts of the enemy. Those doubts, those assaults, those, those things that try to break us down. Just with, with, well, I don't know that you need to bow your heads. Just how many of you say, I, I got one of those issues. And I'm, today, as the word comes out, I'm going to say, God, I submit to you. I trust you. I believe you in the face of this. You said this word to me, and I will not doubt it. Would you hold your hands up? Father God, see us. See our hands. Your word today, as we watch you, dear Lord standing there in that temple courtyard telling them something that they would do to you and telling them you would rise before it made any sense. But everything you said was true. Everything came to pass. Lord, that's true for us too. The things you've spoken to us will come to pass. You, the creator of heaven and earth, you, the word who spoke into existence. When you say something to us, it's coming. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us for doubting. Forgive us for the confusion. Forgive me. I'm going to stand first in line. This is my, my business. Lord, we stand before you this day. Forgive us for doubting. Forgive us for you say things, and within almost moments, we forget you and turn away. Lord, it is, it is fleshy. It is unbelieving, and we, we're sorry. We ask right now you strengthen us and teach us, Lord, to trust your word, to look at your word and believe your word. Right on through, not turn right or left, but just know that when you say a thing, you'll do everything you said you'd do. We declare that right now in Jesus' powerful name. And let that shield of faith come up and defend us from fear, from lack of faith, from confused religious teaching. Our minds will not be clouded. We will behold you and believe. In Jesus' powerful name. If that is your prayer, if you say, yes, Lord, would would you respond? Yes, Lord. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.